The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, thank you. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. Um, Thanks for being with us this morning. As we do every week, we're going to be preaching from the Bible. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we'll be camping out today. So if you have a Bible or an app that you like to use, you can go ahead and take that out. 1 Corinthians 14. If you do not own a Bible, we have some blue paperback Bibles in the seat in front of you. And we would encourage you, actually, that's a gift to you to take one of those home. We have some more at our Welcome Center out in the lobby that you can go ahead and take after service as well. Uh, We'd love to give that to you so you can take it home and read it. Before we get started, please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time together in your word. And there's a lot of ground to cover this morning. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make your teaching plain to us. uh, That it would pierce our hearts. That you would illuminate Christ to us. And that we would learn and see more about uh, who the God is that we worship, and the instructions that you give to us for our worship. We thank you, Lord. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I found out at the same time as the rest of you last week, I'd be preaching on tongues this morning. (laughs) Um, Wasn't my original plan eight days ago. And now I get to push everyone's buttons instead, so it's going to be great. Uh, Leaving here with no friends, looking forward to it. A few few opening comments. Uh, Our passage this morning, the challenge is that our passage this morning really isn't about tongues, okay? It's really about God's worship. And one of the things we've been talking about is that the church in Corinth was abusing the spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, And so in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is trying to correct these abuses by really helping uh, the the Corinthians to see who God is and how he is to be worshipped. And so that's sort of how he's shifting their focus in our text this morning. And so just kind of, you don't have to raise your hand for this, but I wonder how many of you have experience attending a tongue-speaking church. And again, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm well aware of the fact that sort of a mixed audience of people who have varied experience uh, attending a church that practices speaking in tongues. Um, Prior to coming to the faith nine years ago, I had a friend who was taking me to her tongue-speaking church pretty regularly, and uh, I still remember what that was like. I knew very little about what the Bible said in general. (laughs) I also knew very little about what it said about this subject in particular, but I remember there'd be moments where I would be in the service and I would sort of be tracking with the pastor and he'd be, he'd be going and, you know, in the sermon, I'd kind of understand the songs. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he'd just say, okay, now everybody let's speak in tongues together. And it was just like, boom, you know, off they went together off to the races. And I was just stuck at the starting line, just sort of like, what is happening? You know, I said, no idea. And um, it was kind of a turnoff for me. You know, it was, uh, it was a bad experience, I would say. Uh, God was kind to lead me to a different church uh, soon after that where uh, the gospel was clearly preached and the only stumbling block for me was my own sin and the offense of the cross. Uh, But that's sort of the background that I have uh, with this experience of going and attending 
a tongue-speaking church. And so again, just a few comments that I, that I want to make before we get into this text, uh, trying to get everyone sort of on the same page of where we're trying to go uh, this morning. The first thing that I want to say is this, is that when I did finally come to faith, uh, this is one of the subjects that I wrestled with first, was sort of the, the gifts, the charismatic gifts the, with the tongues and the prophecy and, and the healing. And I've returned to it several times throughout seminary studies and my friends who who have different views on this, and so coming back to this, and I've kind of come to a position where there are some things that are, uh, that are up for discussion, and I'll allude to that as we go along, and I think there are some things that are not up for discussion in this conversation, and uh, one of those things that I think is not up for, for, for discussion is, has to do with sort of what I experienced before, uh, this sort of emphasis on the ecstatic, unintelligible uh, experience where sort of everyone's going off at, at one time and nobody has an idea what's going on. And I think if you just applied the, the, the message of 1 Corinthians 14, I think if, if churches today just applied the message of 1 Corinthians 14, a lot of what we see as tongue speaking today would probably fall away from practice. Uh, and so I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time on that. I'm hoping that 1 Corinthians 14 speaks for itself as we go through it, uh, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on sort of what I consider to be the ecstatic uh, emphasis on these gifts, and I think the only thing that would really accomplish if I made a sermon out of that, the only thing that would accomplish would sort of just make me feel more smug about myself, maybe some of you feeling more smug about yourselves, and I don't want to do that, right? I don't want to take shots across the bow and, and all of that, so I'm not going to go there. Uh, instead, where I want to go is really to take 1 Corinthians 14 address the subject of tongue speaking, but then to really wrestle with the principles that we see in this passage and apply it so that God's word pierces our hearts and our lives and our practices this morning. And so that's sort of one comment. Uh, another second preface comment here, uh, again, this sermon isn't really about tongue speaking. It's about worship. I'm going to address tongue speaking, but really I want to do it in this broader concept of worship. And what does it mean to worship God? And what does the Bible say about worshiping God? And so I'm going to try to address some of the big questions uh, around tongue speaking. I'm not going to get to every question. And a lot of people have their, well, what about this? And what about this? I can't, I just, I can't get to everybody's whatabouts this morning. I wish I could, but we'd be here all day. And uh, that's disrespectful. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But if you have more questions after the service, uh, you know, you can always follow up with me or Charlie uh, in person or by email. Third thing, this is something I've been reflecting on a lot this week, is I'm well aware of the fact that there's disagreement in this room on the subject. That's, I'm not lost on that, and I'm not lost on the fact that many of you already know our church's position on these things, and yet you've already committed to membership here, and you've committed to loving our church. And I was really struck this week, you know, that um, Neva and I, we don't really have an experience where we've ever really attended a church where we disagree with things. You know, um, because of my sense of call to ministry, when we were Baptists in our convictions, we attended a Baptist church because I thought I was going to be a Baptist pastor, right? And then when we changed our convictions, we attended a Presbyterian church because I thought I was going to be a Presbyterian pastor, you know? And, and so what I'm trying to say is I don't know the difficulty of committing to a church where you don't agree with everything. And so I want to say up front that I respect you for that. And I honor you for that. And I think, you know, when Jesus says that they're going to know his disciples by their love for one another, he's not saying it by their level of agreement with one another, but by their love for the body. And I think that many of you in this room who have committed to a church where maybe you don't always agree with everything really is displaying the love that Jesus talks about. And so I want to thank you up front that even though you may disagree with some of the things that I'm going to say, I, I thank you for committing yourself uh, to our church. 
And fourth and final preface comment is just a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I'm going to give you the main point of the sermon up front. And so that way uh, you kind of know where we're trying to go uh, in the text this morning. And I'm hoping that that sort of hel- is helpful to you. So here's the main point. Here's kind of where I'm driving. Let's see. There we go. All right. It's working. Main point of our sermon this morning, that the instructions on tongue speaking in the New Testament show us how important it is to God that he be worshipped in ways that we can understand so that he can be praised rightly. Only then will believers be edified and unbelievers come to faith. So that's sort of, if you want to know the sermon in one, in one two sentences, that's what it is and that's where we're going uh, this morning. In order to save some time, I'm not going to read the scripture passage up front. Uh, but instead, I'm going to have some slides, and we're going to be referencing the, the passage as we go along, and hopefully you can follow along with the slides behind me and the text that's in front of you. So does that sound good to everybody? All right. Outline. Three questions. What is the gift of tongues? Number one. Number two, does this gift still exist? And number three, who is worship for? So that's where we're going. First question, what is the gift of tongues? The uniform teaching of Scripture is that God loves his people. That's the uniform teaching of Scripture. He sets them free from their sins. And as we saw in our passage in Exodus 3, and there's other references in the book of Exodus, that the great end of our salvation is God's praise and his worship. And so it's out of his love for us and his desire to be worshipped by his people that he stresses throughout his word in the Old and New Testament how important it is that he be worshipped in ways that we can understand. He wants to be worshipped with our hearts, with our souls, and with our minds. He wants his glory and his majesty to be comprehended so that it can be declared in all the cosmos and people will bow down and praise him. Everything we read about the gift of tongues in the New Testament just backs up that point. The first occurrence of the gift of tongues we saw was at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The promised Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, which confirmed that something tremendous and new was happening in redemptive history. Because of their sin and pride, God had previously scattered the people of this earth together with their languages back in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. But now we see that God is working something new. He's he's using the Holy Spirit to bring about understanding and communication, and he's bringing together what was formerly separated. God is bringing together people of every tribe and every nation, and he's using speech to do it. What happened at Pentecost was an incredible and supernatural work. People from all over the known world and... um, we, we saw all these different names of different nations and people groups who were hearing the apostles speak, and it says in their own native language. These were not languages the apostles had known previously. But God opened their mouths and caused them to speak words of promise and of hope and of salvation to people who had not yet heard these messages. We see a similar pattern unfold twice more in Acts. Once in chapter 10, when the Gentiles, the outsiders, receive the promised Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. And then again in Acts chapter 19, we find 12 disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard about the the, uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And so when they received the Holy Spirit, they too speak in tongues. And this was to show that Jesus' baptism truly was greater than John's baptism, just like John said it would be in Matthew chapter 3. In all three occasions in Acts, the gift of tongues is an earthly, real, existing, intelligible, comprehensible language. It was given for the purpose of making the gospel known to the nations and of confirming God's promises. The passages in Acts and everything we see in 1 Corinthians, particularly in our passage in 1 Corinthians 14, they're all speaking to the same gift with the same manifestations and the same use in the church. Now, what we see weave into our passage this morning, I hope you have your Bible or your bulletin out in front of you, in verses 6 to 25, we see throughout this passage the importance of using words that people can actually understand. So let me highlight some of these verses for you. In verses 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul has these rhetorical questions that end with him asking, if your speech is not intelligible, how will anyone understand what you're saying? It would be like speaking into the air. He goes on to emphasize in point 10, or sorry, in verse 10, that there are many languages and they're all with meaning. But if I'm to speak a language and you don't understand the meaning, then we're foreigners to one another. And that's not helpful. In verse 13, he says, if you have the gift of tongues, pray to interpret. He says later in verse 28, this isn't in your bulletin, but just a few verses after our passage, he says, if no one can interpret, then one should keep quiet. In verses 14 and 15, he stresses the importance of praying and singing and worshiping in ways that our mind will benefit, which means in ways that we can understand. And then finally, towards the end of the passage, well, in verse 16 and in verse 23, he has this concern for non-Christians, for non-believers who enter and who think that we'll be out of our minds if they don't understand what we're talking about. And so you see throughout this passage this incredible importance of speaking and in worshiping in ways that people can understand, whether Christians or non-Christians alike, people, ways that people can understand. Now, this would all be pretty straightforward if it wasn't for a unique turn of events at the start of the 20th century. There were a couple revivalist movements around 1906 and 1907 that popularized this teaching that in addition to the gift of tongues that we see in the New Testament with this form of real earthly languages, there is also this gift of tongues uh, which comes uh, in the form of ecstatic utterances, of sort of unintelligible uh, repetition and, and syllables and these kinds of things. Some people were saying that it was the language of angels. And I want to take a moment to address this view. Again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to address this uh, for two reasons. One, if, if you're new to this, if this is something new to you, if you're kind of unaware uh, of this teaching, I do want you to be equipped to interact with it. A little bit, and uh, if you are here this morning, and this is something maybe a position you come from, or a position you're currently wrestling with, uh, I just want you to have a few things to consider. I think the scriptural uh, argument or case for for this position, and so I just want to walk through again a few things with you on this. Uh, again, so thinking about this position of uh, a form of tongues that's not an intelligible earthly language, 
but uh, sort of, again, the ecstatic utterances, the, maybe an angel, a private prayer language, or, or something like that. The first thing to consider is church history doesn't really acknowledge this form of tongue speaking. Uh, you're not going to find it in most of church history. When you do find it, it's sort of in fringe groups, uh, sometimes cult groups that are, that are quickly dismissed by uh, the mainstream Orthodox Church. And so one of the, the challenges with this view is you have to somehow account for why did God skip 1,800 years of church history to work in this way. And so that's, that's just one thing to consider. Second, I'm not sure if uh, ecstatic, unintelligible tongues, I'm not really sure if it holds up to the repeated emphasis that we're seeing, and we're gonna look at this more, this repeated emphasis on intelligible, comprehensible worship, that God desires that he be worshiped in ways that people can understand. And so that's, a, that's just a challenge to make that fit uh, in the emphasis of scripture. And third, I just want to consider a couple of the scriptural passages uh, that people sometimes point to for uh, this view on sort of the ecstatic uh, language. And uh, again, like kind of Charlie did last week with prophecy, I just want you to consider some of these verses and see does, does the conclusion, can the, can the supports really bear the weight of the conclusion, you know, to use Charlie's analogy. And so a couple here, let's see if my uh, slide changing is working or not. Uh, if not, maybe Steve, you can follow along. There we go. One of the passages that's used to talk about sort of this, this private, maybe angel language is 1 Corinthians 13.1. And so I just want to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 in its context, and let's see what Paul is talking about here. Uh, so verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Well, some people, uh, not, not every, uh, I'm not trying to say every person who holds to the view of tongue speaking has this view, but some people point to this verse and say, you see, Paul mentions the tongues of angels here in verse 1, and so he's acknowledging that there's some form of uh, angelic language that's accessible to us. But in its context, what is Paul really talking about here? I think if you look at verse 1 in its context of verses 1 through 3, we see that Paul is using a repetition of four rhetorical exaggerations to make a point, right? I think that's clear in the other ones. Uh, so in verse 2, he talks about, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, well, the only one who understands all mysteries and all knowledge is God, so that's, that must be an exaggeration. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, right? He's using a popular teaching of Jesus to make an exaggeration. Even if I have this tremendous faith, the last verse, if I gave away all that I have but deliver up my body to be burned, was well, he really saying he's going to give up his body to be burned? No, he's exaggerating. Even if, even if this happened, you know, it's kind of like saying if I had wings, I could fly. But if I had not love, it would be nothing. And keep in mind that every time angels do show up in Scripture, uh, they speak in a language we understand. Uh, and that happens several times in the Old and New Testament. And so something to consider, if, if there was a private angelic language, wouldn't those be the places that God would reveal that to us and not in this one little first half of a phrase? Another verse that's used to support the ecstatic utterances comes from our passage or to support maybe a private prayer language of, of tongue speaking. It comes from chapter 14, verse 18. 
Uh, and so you have this in front of you. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And again, some people read this as Paul saying, uh, I thank God that I speak in tongues in my private prayer life. But is that what he's saying in this passage? Um, I think that's something that has to be forced on, on what Paul is saying here. It has to be read into the context. He just finished this argument in the preceding verses where he's talking about the importance of worshiping in the spirit, yes, but also with our mind. So he wants our mind to benefit, right, from our worship practice. So that it's fruitful, he's saying, so it's fruitful to us and to outsiders. And so if Paul then, all of a sudden in verse 18, switches to talking about a private prayer language, that would sort of be contradicting what he's emphasizing in the verses before that, right? You know how people can often be critical of others simply because they're jealous, you know? Paul is making sure the Corinthians know that is not the case. He is not critiquing their tongue speaking because he's jealous that they get to do it more than he does. He's making sure they know, and he reminds them that in his apostolic ministry, he's had this great privilege that God has worked through him to speak in these languages, to see the gospel going forth, to see the promises of Christ confirmed in the lives of others. And so, friends, I just want you to consider what the scriptures say about this gift of tongues. Our God is a God of clarity, not of obscurity. He's not a God clouded in mystery. Right? He, he has made himself known to us through his word. And everything we read about tongues shows us that this gift was given to make the person and work of Christ more clear, not less clear. So, it takes me to the second question. Do tongues still exist today? Obviously, a lot of ink has been spilled on this. And I'm not going to be able to address this in a way that's satisfying to everyone. Just, I'm going to be able to say just enough to maybe lose more friends and push more buttons. So I'm really jazzed up this morning. Um, Charlie hit on some of this last week. And I'm going to summarize basically what he said in just a few minutes. And I want to highlight uh, a couple other things. So there's two positions on, on the tongues and, and on, these, on these gifts, what we call the charismatic gifts, which include uh, tongue speaking, prophecy, and healing. And there's two positions on this. Uh, the first position is called continuationist, uh, which means exactly like what it sounds, and that is uh, that the gifts still exist today, uh, that God still gifts individuals in this way, and they're to be pursued in the regular life of the Christian today. And so that's one position. The other position is called cessationist, and a terrible name, uh, but basically means that it ceased, okay? And uh, in other words, God no longer gives the charismatic gifts to individuals, and they're not meant to be pursued in the church's regular life and practice. Charlie spilled the beans last week, the position we hold. He said he waited till the end uh, to, so that everyone, like, you know, was still tracking with him, and I don't have that advantage. He already, he already let it loose, uh, what position we hold. We hold a cessationist position. And I want to be clear for a minute uh, as a cessationist about what we do believe, because sometimes we define the, get our position negatively, like what we don't believe, and I want to define what we do believe. And uh, last, last night I was uh, curious about this, maybe how other people view the cessationist position. So I wanted to see how a, a respected um, 
continuationist uh, pastor maybe views a cessationist position. So I went and looked at Matt Chandler down at the Village Church in Texas, and I wanted to see what he thought about the gifts. So I looked at a, a sermon he preached in, in 2017 on this, and uh, I was a little bit offended. Uh, he said, number one, well, we're continuationists because we're Bible folk, so implying that, you know, I'm not, number one. And number two, he said, basically, those guys, uh, what did he call us? Um, it wasn't crunchy. It was, uh, what did he say? Crusty. We're crusty. People who hold the stationist position. I was offended. Do I look crusty to you guys? Come on. I am not a crusty guy, right? I'm fun. I'm lively. My wife is saying, no, he's pretty crusty. Uh, but, you know, it, but it's kind of like this idea of if you're not continuationist, you don't believe the Bible and you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. It's kind of, that's kind of, that was kind of the vibe of the sermon, and I was kind of disappointed in that. And so let me tell you what we do believe as cessationists. Number one, uh, we believe that God still works miracles, okay? We believe that he still orchestrates events supernaturally to bring people to faith, to work out circumstances and in, in working out good for those who love him, right? We believe all of that. We believe that he may even still use things like uh, supernatural activity like dreams, to help bring people to faith. There's widespread reports of Muslims who have these dreams, and it's one small piece that leads them to Christ, right? We believe that God still heals, which is why we pray for it, and Tom just prayed for it in our pastoral prayer. We believe that he still speaks through his Holy Spirit, and that he applies his word to our hearts in unique and amazing ways. It's just that we do not believe that these gifts come through any one particular individual, like they did in the early church. We don't believe that any one person has a gift to heal or a gift to speak in tongues or to prophesy like we see in the early church. And so when God speaks through someone to you, um, we would say that that is not the prophetic gift that we see in the New Testament, but it's a gift of exhortation or a gift of teaching. And we don't see the, the case for why that needs to be the gift of prophecy. Now, our position, uh, we believe this most sort of fits with the pattern of the Bible, I think we see in the scripture that miraculous signs and wonders are sort of clustered together at different periods in Bible history when God is up to something new and we see these gifts show up, but they're not the norm. It's not like a miracle a day in the life of every single person in the Bible. And then you can also think of our position, you've seen this now on the slide behind me, you can kind of think of our position like a row of dominoes. Uh, once you flick the first one, the, all, the rest sort of fall behind it, right? And so it starts with 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he's the last of the apostles, divinely appointed by Christ, the last one to see the risen Christ. And so uh, with Paul being the last of the apostles, the apostolic office has closed, which is why he instructs Timothy and Titus to appoint elders and pastors and not to appoint apostles to the churches. So the office of apostle has ceased. If you agree with me there, then you're a cessationist too, all right? The office of prophet is almost always grouped with that of apostle, as we see in Ephesians 2.20, where Paul says that the apostles and prophets played the foundational role for the church. We see a continuation between New Testament prophet and Old Testament prophet, that they both speak authoritatively. They spoke, both speak the inspired word of God. And so therefore, uh, with the office of apostle having closed, the office of prophet also closed. I think we sort of see this continuity in the office of prophet in 2 Peter chapter 1 and 2, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, Peter says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. And he goes on to talk about the false prophets who have arisen among you. 
New Testament prophets spoke authoritatively like the prophets of old, and so again, the continuation, and if the apostles have ceased, prophets have also ceased. We then look at 1 Corinthians 14, 5, where Paul says that interpreted tongues carry the same weight of prophecy, and so therefore, if they carry the same weight, if prophecy, if the function and need for prophecy have ceased, then the function and need for tongues has also ceased. And then further, with the gift of healing, often accompanied these miraculous displays of prophecy in tongues, so the last sort of domino to fall is the gift of healing. And I think as Charlie pointed out last week, if if one individual had an incredible gift of healing, I think we would see them in places like the children's cancer unit, where I used to serve, uh, instead of the magicians who are just doing their best to bring a smile. You know what I'm saying? So, at the end of the day, uh, let me say this. Uh, there's room for disagreement on this, and obviously we have disagreement in this room uh, on, this, on, this, on this point. Uh, but at the end of the day, whether or not you believe that the gift of tongues or prophecy or uh, healing still exist, uh, the use of these gifts must be submitted to the weight and instruction of Scripture. And as I said at the beginning, I think if many modern practices of tongues submitted themselves and applied the clear instruction of Scripture, I think a lot of what we see as tongue speaking today would cease. Now, my last, last point, who is worship for? Uh, I want to bring this all back together now, uh, coming back to our text in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, eight days ago, this is going to be point one, uh, but here we are. Uh, ultimately, again, I, I told you that this is not a sermon about tongues, it's a sermon about worship, and I think that's where Paul is driving us in this text this morning. Uh, he's talking about uh, who worship is for and to try and shift our focus back to proper worship. Now, we ask this question, who is worship for? Uh, many of us probably know this is a Sunday school answer, right? Worship is for God, you know? Westminster Catechism question one, you know, the glory of God, right? We all know the Bible Sunday school answer. And yet, I think in our thoughts and practice, we can start to drift away from this emphasis on God being worshiped, and we can start to drift in one of two directions, uh, that I want us to think about. Uh, one direction we can start to drift in is where we start to think that uh, worship is primarily for non-believers. We start to think that worship is primarily for non-Christians, people outside the church, and so the role of the church is to bring as many people in as possible, and so we sort of start to emphasize, um, we start to emphasize, uh, you can go back, Steve, not quite there yet, thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, we start to emphasize conversions and baptisms and, and sort of making decisions for the faith and all that. And so that sort of can become one way that the church can drift. And then another way that the church can drift is we start to think that worship is just for us, people who are already on the inside of the church. And we think that the worship and the ministry of the church is primarily for the church's members. Okay? And when we begin to drift in either direction, uh, unhealthy cycles start to present themselves. In the first case, if you start to emphasize sort of numbers and conversions and, and all these things, which are good things for the church to care about, but when that becomes the emphasis of the church, you start to see what I call the revolving door effect, uh, which is that people come into the church almost as quickly as they're leaving, right? And you start to see a lot of what Jesus is talking about with the seeds that sprout up quickly and then fall away. And that's often because you have uh, a very little emphasis on discipleship, on growth, 
on people growing in their faith, um, on pastoring and on care and these kinds of things. And so you kind of see, like I said, the revolving back door, right? People coming in the front and then leaving out the back just as quickly. And, you, and when you're stuck in that cycle, it's hard to see the unhealthy symptoms of that because you think it's all good, right? With people coming into the church. But the other unhealthy cycle is one where the church starts to become very sort of inward focused. And Tim Keller describes this in your reflection quote in the bulletin. And he kind of, I'll summarize it, he basically talks about how Christians begin to think that worship and the ministry of the church is primarily for them. And so over time, the worship and the ministry of the church becomes very uninviting to outsiders. And it starts to become very easy to feel. And people start to think, you know, like, this probably wouldn't be the best place to invite my non-Christian friend. And so they stop inviting their non-Christian friends. And then pastors seeing that there aren't many non-Christians show up and knowing that the people there are kind of just expecting stuff for them, they start to only address people in the room. And then you get this unhealthy cycle of the inward-focused church. But let's look at what Paul's assumption were, assumptions were for the church's worship. And uh, so we're going to kind of look at this quickly. Uh, but in, verse, or in chapter 14, what is, what is Paul assuming about uh, the church's worship? Well, go back, uh, Steve, if you don't mind, go back to the slide. So verses 16 and verses 23 to 25. Who is Paul's concern? Just, just think, who is Paul's concern in these verses? So verse 16 of chapter 14, he says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? Then in verses 23 to 25, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? All right, and then he goes on, But if you're prophesying, as if you're speaking in ways they can understand, then what happens when they enter, they fall on their face, they're convicted, and they say, Truly God is among you. So, in verses 16 and 23 to 25, who's Paul thinking about? The outsider. Right? He's thinking about the outsider coming into a worship service. But who is he thinking about in verses 5, 12, 17, and 19? This repeated emphasis on believers who are built up in the faith. Well, some of us see that and we think, huh, that's kind of contradictory. How can you focus on one and the other at the same time? But for Paul, it wasn't a contradiction. It wasn't a dichotomy. It wasn't an either-or question. And so, I want to lay out some of this for us now as we're Coming to close uh, on this text, I want to lay out uh, four things that I think we can apply from, from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 as he's talking about tongue speaking and apply that to sort of our context and, and tease this out a little bit. So the first thing that we can get from 1 Corinthians 14 is that non-Christians are expected to be present in worship. And we saw in uh, Psalm 96, there's plenty of other passages in the Old Testament, that just as the people of Israel were to expect the nations to be gathered so that they would be summoned to God's worship, we're expected, we're, we're expected to expect non-Christians to be present in our service so that they will be summoned to God's worship. So, what is the first step if you find yourself in a cycle of sort of only thinking inwardly? What's the first step to breaking that cycle? Expectation. What are your expectations for the Sunday service? If we expect that at any point my neighbor might show up and sit next to me in the church service, that might change how we sort of walk in to the sanctuary. If we expect that our friend's neighbor is going to be sitting behind us in the church service, that might change how we walk into the church service on Sunday morning. Uh, my mom... She always said that she was raised uh, to 
believe that a, a guest could show up for dinner at any time. They might kind of hear that from their parents. A guest could show up for dinner at every time. Right? So what does that mean? Make more than you need. Right? Make more than you need so you have a ton of leftovers, but so that if someone does come into the dinner, they're not going to feel awkward and like they're sort of interrupting something. Right? So her expectation changed how she prepared dinner. And I think when we have an expectation that outsiders are going to be present maybe in our service or maybe even a Bible study or in a group, it's just going to change how we approach things. And it changes what we notice. Uh, I was at the, the basketball court the other day. We, Felix was playing at the playground. And uh, there was a group of teenagers playing basketball. And uh, there was a guy standing on the sideline, and you could just tell he was the new kid. I mean, it was so obvious that he was the new kid. His body language, the way he was shying away from the group, the way he was like looking, trying to make eye contact with them, but they weren't making eye contact with him, the way he was sort of just keeping to himself. And you could tell what he was just waiting for was the invitation to come play, right? And we notice things like that if we have an expectation that people like that are going to be around. And that often, that expectation moves us to action, to notice the person sitting in the sanctuary who's uncomfortable because they don't have anyone to talk to, the person in the hallway who needs someone to talk to, maybe someone who doesn't have an invite to go to Thanksgiving or a dinner or something like that. We notice these things when we start to expect it. And so, like Paul, let's expect that non-Christians will be present in worship. Second, Paul has an expectation that non-Christians are going to be able to comprehend, they're going to be able to understand the worship and practice of Christians. So again, regardless of our conclusions about tongues, whether you believe they still exist today or not, here's something that we cannot miss. Paul told the Corinthian church to change its worship because non-Christians are present. Can't miss that point. Paul told the Corinthian church to change its practice on tongues because non-Christians are going to be present. And what were his instructions? To adapt to the culture? No. To go soft on the teaching of the Bible? No. It's more simple than that, but much more difficult. His instruction is this, to speak and worship in ways that an outsider might understand you. And like many of you, uh, this is a challenge for me. I've become somewhat fluent in my time as a Christian in what I'll call uh, Calvinese. Uh, Highly theological language and lots of quotes from mostly dead, bearded white guys. Um, And here's what I've realized about this this language of Calvinese. Uh, A lot of the language that I use is a tongue unto itself. To most people... Calvinese is a tongue unto itself, and my Calvinese is useless in building up others unless I interpret it for them, right? Why does this grand doctrine of justification matter to you? The ordo salutis and our union with Christ and, you know, everything that Spurgeon and Calvin said, why does that matter to someone who has no idea who John Calvin is? It has to be interpreted for them. And so what does this mean for us? Well, those of us who have a hand in planning worship, organizing ministries or groups, maybe leading a ministry or a group, I think we should think very intentionally about the language that we use when we're together. This does not mean that we shouldn't use theological terms. It does mean we should probably take some time to explain it when we do use those words. 30 seconds, a minute, 
right? Doesn't mean that we should refrain from theological debate or maybe debates about social issues or our political positions. It does mean that Sunday morning or our Bible study group probably are not the best place for those conversations. When the worship and practice of Christians is not intelligible to outsiders, Paul says it's a form of judgment. And so in verse 21, uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, which was a prophecy of judgment on the people of Israel. God was going to use Assyria to judge Israel, and Assyrian was a language the Israelites did not understand, and so when they showed up to execute judgment, that's the language was just a sign that God is using Assyria to judge you. So Paul Connection, an uninterpreted tongue, an uninterpreted worship service is judgment to outsiders because it basically is sending the message, this is for us and not for you. The gospel is for us and not for you. This is why prophecy for Paul was superior. It could build up Christians and convict non-Christians at the same time. So third point of application, non-Christians will fall under conviction and be converted through comprehensible worship and practice. That's where Paul's ending in verse 25, right? Now, we believe in the call to evangelism, one-on-one sharing of the gospel with others. I mean, we had Dr. Randy Newman here a couple weeks ago to talk to us about that, right? We absolutely believe in the call of Christians to share their faith with others, and yet we must dismiss this idea that evangelism is primarily a solo effort, like it's up to you by yourself on the metro, you know, by yourself, or up to you by yourself in the workplace. That's important, and we need to do those things, but there's also this emphasis in the scripture that the redeemed community is going to be a powerful proof of the truth of the gospel, right? Jesus makes this point all the time. Like we said, they'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And what does Paul say here? He's talking about if, a, if an outsider comes in and they understand, they're going to be convicted and, and, and called to account and fall on their face and worship. The Samaritan woman at the well, when she ran back to her village and she, she celebrated Christ before the villagers, they wanted to come and see Jesus. I think when people see us celebrating the gospel and what it's doing in our life and they're seeing us live that out, they're going to want to come and respond and see Christ for themselves as well. Finally, believers will grow in their faith. Now you put these four points next to each other and often people want to say you have to pick either the first three or number four, but you can't have all four at once. But again, for Paul, he didn't think that way. Over and over again, Paul says the worship of the church is useless unless believers are being built up. How can worship be a place for Christians and for non-Christians to benefit at the same time? How can our Bible studies and our groups be an enriching place to Christians while being open and inviting to non-Christians at the same time? That's hard, right? That's That's a difficult challenge. Those of you who teach a Bible class, you know it's a difficult challenge. I think that's what the text presents for us. There's only one way to make that happen. If we endeavor to help each other truly keep Christ at the center of our worship and practice, then we will take seriously all that he calls us to in our worship and our practice. And so what does this look like? I think this looks like uh, the church coming together to foster expectation for non-Christians to be present in our worship and in our groups. It's an emphasis on clarity over complexity. 
an awareness of the felt needs of our neighbors and friends so we can address them and apply the gospel to them. That's what Paul was saying with all that contextualization stuff earlier in 1 Corinthians. And a willingness to maybe create space in our groups for someone new. And this is something that we can all work towards together. We're in this together. And so if you, like me, have a long way to go, some of you have sent me emails and told me when things were not clear, this may have not been clear to you, I have a long way to go. And if you feel that way too, then let's pray and let's encourage one another in this work so that we might grow and see the body built up as God intended it for it to be. Let's pray together. Father, this was a tough teaching, a lot to get through this morning. If I was unclear at any of this, if I was unfaithful to your word, again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would clarify these teachings for us would apply it to us and help us to see all that you're calling us to and that you want us to worship you in a way that you have revealed so that we might grow in our faith and so that unbelievers, that outsiders would come to praise you as well. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to do that, we pray. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.